to another episode of Skeptics and Seekers. I'm your host, David, and I'm joined by another guy. Hello. Yeah, hey, yeah. What? I don't recognize this voice. Who's there? I'm Darren. I am another skeptic off the boards of uh, Skeptics and Seekers. Oh, he's not just another skeptic, folks. He is the original lay skeptic. Darren, how you doing? Oh, I'm doing pretty good, and you? I'm doing excellent. Uh, and so, yeah, this is going to be fun. Look, uh, there's a lot of um, stuff I could talk about by way of uh, preamble, uh, housekeeping, uh, and such. But you know what? I just did a two-hour podcast uh, not that long ago. And so I got off of that one, and I'm on to this one. And I've had enough of preamble. I just want to jump right into this topic. So uh, I hate to cheat you out of some fun SNS news. Uh, look for it in the um, look for it in the uh, comments. Skepticsandseekers.wordpress.com. Shoot me an email. Uh, Skepticsandseekers at gmail.com. Darren, we're talking about evidence. Evidence. Uh, I called this post. Prove it. A closer look at evidence, reason, and faith. I think we can find something to talk about here. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So, uh, you know what? With uh, no further ado, I'm going to give you the first bite of the apple, uh, Darren. Uh, take one minute, take ten minutes, uh, take no minutes. Uh, you can choose either one of those except no minutes. And uh, <laughs> set up your case. Prove it. Prove it. Um, I'm not sure you can prove it, honestly. Um Okay, so I don't know. For me, uh, evidence is really a smaller piece of a larger picture. Uh, you've got there. Uh, evidence is just the the facts of a reality, what we know to be true. Um, and what happens is people take uh, those facts of reality and they reason to a claim, and that claim is um, is then what we call knowledge or um, uh, or it could be uh, another um, fact of reality at some point uh, once we ha are certain enough about it to use that claim to prove other claims. Um, so the um, so that's that's what I view evidence as. It's um, it's that tool that uses that we use to distinguish fact from fiction. Okay. It allows us to believe as many true things and as few false things as possible. Hey, can we can we uh, uh, look at that definition a little bit closer? As uh, because I think it is good and proper to define our terms. In fact, a lot of this uh, discussion I think is going to be definitional. Uh, so let's just go back a little bit. What does it mean to prove something? Are we talking about uh, to a one hundred percent certainty? Is that a definition of proof? Is that the only definition of proof? What does it mean for something to be proven? Um, I think it's a definition of proof. I don't know that it's the definition that most people use. Um, most people just, when they say prove it, I think they just mean um, convince me or um, that's what I'm convinced of. Hmm. I don't know if that's good enough. I don't know if that's good oh. enough for me. Um <laughs> So, oh, it drives me crazy, too. Yeah, uh, because if, if all you're saying is that uh, a thing is proven to you in that you're convinced by it, then that means that 
the def proof definitionally just changes from one person to another. Uh, the, the standard is different from one person to another. There is no standard because it may take very little to convince you of something, and it may take a lot to convince me of something. Um, but the fact that we are convinced of a thing doesn't make it proven. And I agree. Um, the so uh, that's why I tend to avoid the the word, uh, quite honestly, because um, because it uh, even though it um, means different things to different people, uh, you can get you can actually tell the person exactly what you mean if you don't use proof. So for me, if you want to um, prove something, then you demonstrate that what you're claiming accurately maps onto reality. Um, so I tend to use that phrase more often than I do uh, proof, just right. because that means that the person that I'm talking with actually knows what I'm talking about. Right. So um, right. Um, and there's also a, a, another challenge with proof. So we have proof and prove. And they're not exactly the same thing. So a proof is a word that I use synonymously with evidence. I, I offered a proof for this, uh, or I offered a piece of evidence for this. And I have now seen enough evidence so that I consider it proven, uh, if you see the difference there. So um, what do I mean by proof if I don't like the, the standard definition? Uh, I think that something is proven when it has been uh, shown to uh, accurately map onto reality. Uh, so a thing either does accurately map onto reality or not. And to prove it is to demonstrate that it maps accurately onto reality. So it's a demonstration of the claim that something maps accurately onto reality how do you what do you think of that i think that's a, a fairly um a fairly useful definition for that okay um okay let's let's go with that now i i'm not going to promise that my definition won't change halfway <laughs> through this discussion um I, this is this is going to be one of the more challenging discussions for me because I really have to. I mean, I've I've read your uh, statement, which is good. Um, I've written a statement, obviously, but I'm really having to think my way through this um, a lot. This is a minefield, and I'm not a philosophy wonk, and there's a lot of philosophy here. But I think it's I think it's important because we all talk about proof and evidence and reason and things like that. And so we all ought to at least have a pretty good idea of what we mean when we're talking about it. And it's not enough to say, well, I'm not a philosopher, so I can't. Well, no, but we're, we're using these terms and these ideas. Uh, and so I'm putting myself out there a little bit. Um, this is going to be one of those episodes where I probably say a lot of stupid things on the mic. Uh, and they're pointed out to me. And uh, I, I will just have to agree that I was... I, I misspoke because I, I really don't know. Isn't that sort of the nature of podcasting? No, no, <laughs> uh, it is not. I, I usually know what I'm talking about. <laughs> so this is one of those um, 
podcasts where I just have to admit to the audience, um, I don't know what I'm talking about. Uh, now, I don't know what I'm talking about in the same way that most of the audience doesn't know what they're talking about. Uh, I think most people don't know what they're talking about here, but we're taking an extra step of going out there and exploring this in a public way so that people can see that we don't know what we're talking about. Um, well, it's one, it's one of those things that um, it's uh, an idea that everyone feels that they understand until they actually start thinking about it. Yes. Yes. That's, that was, that was it for me. I really thought I thought I knew. And then I started writing and I realized, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but I've already agreed to do this thing, so I'm in trouble now. <laughs> so, um, and I actually think that you have thought about this uh, better than I have because I read your posts, and even though you are a rather frustrating to your interlocutors, uh, I can tell that you have a depth of thought on this particular uh, topic at the very least that makes you worth uh, talking to, uh, but it can also make you a little frustrating. I just want to acknowledge that up, up front. Um, in fact, uh, just an example of uh, that frustration, uh, when I shared my original uh, post with uh, Darren, he, uh, he pointed out something in the post, and it made me want to go back and edit it, but I'm not editing it. I'm leaving it in there. <laughs> but uh, well, I said... Um, you know, something about if a person says they had chicken eggs for breakfast, um, that wouldn't be a problem for me. Not a, not as big of a deal as if they said uh, they had dinosaur eggs for breakfast. And um, Darren said, well, you see, uh, if you had chicken eggs, uh, that is technically uh, the same as dinosaur eggs. And uh, so I facepalmed. And uh, here I am. So, <laughs> well, if it makes you feel any better, I'm probably the only one that's anal retentive enough to actually point that out to you. So, <laughs> everyone else is actually going to take what you what you meant by the comment and just let it go. Well, but now <laughs> I I felt stupid because I could I could really argue with it, <laughs> but and I suspect that that level of precision is necessary uh, for this kind of conversation. So, um, don't hold back. Uh, with that level of precision. So we've, we've looked at proof, and we have a kind of a working definition that we can live with here. Uh, I've put three other terms uh, out there, and so let's just attack those uh, one at a time as well. Uh, proof slash evidence. Uh, first of all, do you agree with me that we can use those words synonymously? Um, for this conversation, I think so. Okay. And um, evidence... Let me uh, draw that from your uh, write-up. Do you have that write-up where you pull the Google definition there? Because I like that definition. Yeah, absolutely. Would you read that? Uh, yeah. The available body of facts or information indicating whether belief or proposition is true or valid. Um, and then if you, if you look farther afield, you, the wording might be a little bit different. But the idea is pretty much the same. Um, you're basically using t evidence as a tool to s decide if some proposition is true or false. Okay, so for something to be evidence, it has to be a useful tool for getting to the truth. As far as I'm concerned, yeah. The um, Because, I mean, it has to be, just definitionally, it has to be a fact of reality. Um, so it has to be true. 
Um, right, but not every to, fact of reality can get you to the truth of a particular proposition. Well, no, and evidence isn't doesn't isn't what gets you to the proof of a proposition. It's just a tool that helps you distinguish whether something is whether your proposition is true or false. It's the reasoning really that gets you to the truth of a proposition. Okay, but once again, for evidence to be valid, it has to be in some way useful in leading you for truth. So, for instance, if we're trying to figure out what the score of last night's basketball game was, and I offer as evidence I had eggs for breakfast this morning, well, that's the true fact that maps on accurately to the universe. But you can't reason back from what I had for breakfast to the score of uh, last night's basketball game. Right. And it, you could even say that uh, having eggs for breakfast is consistent with the score of the um, basketball game, which is why consistency by itself isn't a requirement for it to be evidence or isn't a lone requirement of it being evidence. But the important part, I think, of what you're trying to point out there is that it has to be inconsistent with um, opposing propositions. So you have to actually um, have something that's consistent, but um, inconsistent with opposing propositions. So if one person's saying that it, the score was five to five to three, and another person is saying it was seven to three, having eggs is consistent with both those propositions. So it wouldn't be evidence for either one of them. Whereas if you actually want evidence that is for the proposition, then you would have to come up with something that's, you know, video that hasn't been altered or something that's not only consistent, but shows that the evidence is pointing towards one proposition over another. Okay, so let's, let's explore that a little bit more then. Let's, let's make our example better. First of all, if you watched a bas- basketball game uh, for four quarters and the score was five to three, that was a shitty basketball game. You should have checked out a long time ago. First quarter. <laughs> well, <that> game. <laughs> well, I check out before the game starts. Okay. So. <laughs> you, you clearly do not understand how basketball works. <laughs> I do not, no. <laughs> so um, so uh, let's just let's put some slightly better numbers on that and a, maybe a better example because I want to I suss this out a bit. Uh, so let's say... Um, there's a proposition on the table that the score of yesterday's basketball game was 100 to 103. Okay. Uh, that seems like an awful lot of work. That's, a, that's the score of a good game. Okay. All right. Three, three to five. That's like a good hockey game. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, and by the way, good hockey game, oxymoronic. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I said that. Anyway, uh, basketball. <laughs> so uh, let's say then, um, as, as evidence of that, I suggest to you, hmm, 100 to 103. That sounds like that would have been a good game. Now, I didn't watch the game, and I haven't read any news reports on the game, but that sounds right to me. C- considering the teams involved, I think the score was 105 to one, oh, 103 to 100. Is my saying that, can that be entered into evidence? 
that, that I think that's what the score is? Um, entered into evidence? Yes. Is that evidence? Well, it's evidence for how you're thinking of it. I don't know that it's evidence that the of the fact of reality of what the score of the uh, the game is. Right. So, would uh, you call that evidence? No, not for the proposition that the uh, the uh, game was 100 to 103. Why not? Because we have a problem of. Um, of deciding whether that is a, uh, a fact of reality or not. Okay, but what if I uh, convinced a thousand people that that's what the score was? Let, let's say I wrote it on my blog, and a thousand people read it, and they all trust me because I've never lied to them before, I've never been wrong about a score before, and so a thousand people are willing to swear that that's the score. Now, is that evidence? No. Why not? Uh, because like any math problem, zero plus zero plus zero a thousand times is still zero. Okay. So we might come back to this example uh, and figure out uh, what evidence is. So it is a fact of reality that I think that's the score. Right. But, but, that, um, but just because that is a fact uh, that maps well onto reality, it doesn't actually help you reason back to what the score actually was. Well, and that's because of the proposition. If your proposition was different, um, like say um, you think that the score is 100 to 103, then you claiming that the score is 100 to 103 and that's what you believe, then that would be direct evidence. But because the proposition is what actually happened in reality, then your um, your claim isn't isn't direct evidence. Okay, we might we might have to have some more discussion about evidence. Reason, tell me about reason. What's the difference between reason and evidence? Reason is the logic that you're using to connect the evidence to the claim. Um, so, for example, in um, I can use the example I used in my post. If you've got an expanding universe, you know how do you connect the evidence of a um, of a of a candle to the fact that, or the brightness of a candle to the fact that the universe is actually expanding? And so you have to actually reason your way from the evidence to um, to the to the proposition that you're making. Okay. And then if so reason and then, reason is that which helps you evaluate the evidence. Yeah. Um I I would say it's more making the connection between the the evidence and the claim. Because just evaluating the evidence doesn't necessarily mean you're taking it to um Taking it to the proposition. Okay. Um, all right. I like that. I like that definition better, and that's. I think I understand that pretty well. But now, let me just ask: Can you have? Can you use reason to get to the truth of a claim if you have no evidence? I don't see how. Um, the um, because if if you're reasoning without evidence, then you're just speculating. 
Um, and you have to give, you have to provide some way to demonstrate that you're mapping onto accurately onto reality. And I'm unaware of any way to do that without the facts of reality. So this sounds a little bit like a, a trap that skeptics and atheists fall into. Uh, and I'm, I may be guilty of it too. Uh, and so I don't know if, I don't know if this is the case or not. You can help me explore this, but, um, I, if I come to a conclusion based on the lack of evidence, is that, is that actually valid then? Because what I've done is I've applied reason to a claim without evidence. If you've come to that without evidence, then I would uh, agree that you're not, it's not going to work for you. Right, but I, I, However, I have no evidence because there's no evidence. The other side well, didn't not- present any evidence. Well, I mean, that's not always the case, though. Um, say that, the, like, the, for example, Noah's Flood. It was, uh, uh, according to the story, it covered the entire world. It covered all the, all the mountains. Um, but there is still evidence there um, because a fl- water, um, especially water that has been mixed in with ocean water, which means it's salty and everything, if it actually covered the entire world for how long was it, like a year in the story, then it's actually going to leave physical evidence behind. Um, and when you go looking for that physical evidence, I mean, it's very predictable what it should be leaving behind. And when you go looking for that evidence and you don't find it, then that lack of evidence for the flood actually is evidence for the idea that the flood never happened. Because had it happened it would have left behind that physical evidence, and that physical evidence doesn't exist. Okay, but in that case, it's not really the lack of evidence that you're left with. You're, you're looking at the evidence of geology to say that this didn't happen. So that's, I don't, I don't even think of that as lack of evidence. You're, you're looking at the present state of a thing and the past state of a thing and you're saying what you say happened didn't happen based on the evidence I'm looking at. A, a, a better example might be, uh, is there a God? Mm-hmm. Um, f- something for which I think by definition there can be no evidence. And so in that case, you can't look at the lack of evidence, necessary, even though I've tried to do this. Uh, I think it's fun. Um, you can't really look at the lack of evidence and say, therefore, there's no God. Well, I, I'm not sure I, I agree with you that there could be no evidence for God. Um, because, for example, um, dark matter. We, we have absolutely no clue what it is, what it's supposed to be. Um, we understand absolutely nothing. But we, we understand that the... Um, that the equations we use for the universe don't work without it. So we know it exists because we have evidence, even though we have absolutely no clue how to detect it, how to um, look at it, what it is, or anything like that. We still have evidence of its of its existence. Um, dark energy is sort of the same thing because of the way, because of how much the universe actually weighs. We know that the matter in the universe doesn't only takes up, I think it's like 
six or seven percent or something really small like that of the overall weight. So we know that something is there. Right, but that's that's more of a positive proof. You're proving the existence of something as opposed to proving the non-existence of something, uh, which is a, a much harder thing to do if, if it's possible at all. And so I would think that if we are going with your definition of reason, then the most anyone could be is agnostic about whether there's a God. You could never be uh, knowledgeable or sure that there is no God because we don't have any evidence to evaluate. Well, yeah, and that's the problem. We don't actually have any evidence right, for would you, God. Would you agree with that assessment that what we would then have to be, uh, if we're being perfectly logical, is agnostic? Yeah, I'm not sure that I necessarily agree with that assessment. Um, just because if there's no evidence, then how can you make the proposition for a God in the first place? Um, right, but and, we, can, we can say that we don't agree with you that you haven't made your case, but we can't say we believe there is no God. Well, and I'm actually talking about the step before that. Okay. I mean, um, so what's the difference between a fictional c character like Gandalf and, uh, and God? Gandalf's a good guy? Well, th that and... Um, I mean, but I guess my point was that there there is no real difference. Someone wrote down uh, things about this God. Someone wrote down things about Gandalf. And yet we don't have to be agnostic about whether Gandalf actually exists or not. Okay, I can appreciate that. But I'm trying to, believe it or not, trying to take the side of the Christian here uh, a little bit. Because I'm not entirely convinced that they're wrong. Um, yeah, no, I'm, I'm sort of in the same boat. It's... Um, I'm not entirely sure how I think about it, but I think I sort of, well, I guess I'm not entirely sure how I, what conclusion I come to. Right. So if reason is how we uh, evaluate the evidence with regard to uh, the proposition, and there is a proposition. So for instance, there is no proposition that Gandalf is real. So we don't have to evaluate that at all. There's, there's no reason to apply to that. That's not, there's no proposition. But the proposition is God is real. And, right. and if we're going to apply reason to uh, connect the evidence with the claim, and there is no evidence, then the best we can say is, uh, yeah, I don't, I don't uh, agree that he's real or that I don't know. I don't have any way of knowing. Well, I – and sort of the problem I'm running into is that we never start in with no evidence. So for like a proposition that a god exists, we've got the evidence of a thousand other gods in, uh, over the last 12,000 years that we've had recorded history, and none of them have turned out to be true. But that doesn't so mean that they're not real. That just means that their prophets are really bad at proving that they're real. Um, well, 
not entirely sure I agree with that. Okay, which god has been proven to be not real? Well, I mean, there's the logically contradictory gods. Okay, let's uh, eliminate them. Uh, so, of the possible gods, which god has been proven to be not real? I would suggest that no god has been disproven in that sense. Well, in a strictly um, hyperactive phil philosophical sense, I would agree with you. But in the colloquial sense of disproven, I mean, when I if I say the um, the sky is uh, is um, purple and I can't provide any evidence to support that, then, you know, in a strictly philosophical sense, that doesn't mean that uh, the um, sky is not purple, but it does mean that we don't believe it. Yeah, but you know? it doesn't mean that you've been proven wrong. No, but I don't know that you need to be proven wrong in order to dismiss the, the claim. Well, but I'm just trying to nail down what we mean by reason. And if we need evidence to uh, apply our reason to, and we don't have evidence, we can't get to a conclusion by a reason. The only reasonable position then is agnosticism. Yeah, and it's that last part I'm not sure I agree with. Well, I understand why you wouldn't want to agree with it. Trust me, I threw up a little in my mouth every time I said it. But I'm just trying to I'm trying to follow this line wherever it leads. And for those people who don't think that I can be fair-minded about these types of thoughts, you really should just uh, tap my line when I'm talking to Andrew uh, sometimes. The things that we uh, say and consider are scary, uh, quite frankly. Uh, and so this is this reminds me of one of those conversations. i I have to consider the scary other proposition. Well, I don't even know that it's that I don't want to believe it. I think it's there's just no reason to be agnostic about it. Because if you're being agnostic, then you are um, you're saying it's possible one way or the other. And mm, no, that is not what you're saying. You're saying you simply have no way to uh, evaluate whether it's true or not. Right, but agnosticism is a proposition all of its own. So if you are saying that um, that uh, you have to be agnostic in that situation, then I'm not sure I agree with that proposition. Okay, well, when do you, when do you apply agnosticism? Usually when there is some evidence to even start the conversation. Because um, when you have evidence and you have really bad reasoning, but there's no way to get good reasoning on either side of the, the equation, then I think you should be agnostic about whether um, one or the other uh, could actually be true. But if you have zero evidence at all, then I don't even see how you can even start reasoning or even legitimately make the claim. Right. So I'm not entirely sure that... Reasoning. That's that what you said there is, is key. Um, zero evidence means you, you can't really start the reasoning process. And if there's a proposition that I can't even start reasoning on, I'm going to have to walk away from it or simply declare, I don't 
I have no way of determining whether it's true or not. Which is, by the way, my definition of agnosticism. I, I have no way of determining. It's not whether uh, it could be true or it may not be true. I don't, I don't know. But I have no way of determining whether it is. Yeah. Um, but I also don't think we need to take it, the claim seriously either. Right. Well, I don't, I don't think that you have to take seriously everything that you're agnostic about. Uh, right. So I, uh, I would have to say, even though I don't believe in fairies, I am philosophically agnostic about them. Yeah, see, and I'm happy just to say they don't exist. Right, but I think that I could maybe argue you into a position of agnosticism because you don't know whether they could or couldn't exist. No, but I know that the claims made about them yes, um, yes, you can't can, exist. You don't have to be agnostic about specific claims, but of the generic claim of whether fairies might exist or not, you can't know. There's, there's no way for you to know. Yeah, see, and I don't agree with that. Okay, how, uh, how would you know? Well, because I think that if... Um, well, in the case of fairies, I mean, the, I mean, it isn't just fairies. I mean, that's not the only proposition. Fairies is a um, bundle of a lot of other different propositions. You know, small humans, wings, uh, magic, I mean, all of this. And it's not that we don't have any evidence to disprove it. What we have is a lot of claims that are made that have been shown either that the person making the claims can't support those claims or that the claims are logically impossible. So, I mean, we, we're not really starting from a blank slate. We're starting from a lot of... Um, inherited uh, information. So to say that we can't disprove God, I mean, is technically true, but I don't think it's an interesting observation because... I don't think agnosticism is interesting, quite frankly, which is why I don't like the word. I feel uncomfortable around it. I feel uncomfortable with people claiming to be agnostics because I think it's a cheat. I think it's a cop-out. I think it's a chicken-shit way of dealing with a proposition that you don't want to uh, stake a claim to. So I don't, I'm not a fan of agnosticism. So as I'm pushing this idea of agnosticism, I just want you to know where I'm coming from. I, I actually don't like it at all, but I'm just trying to be as philosophically honest as possible and yes. uh, apply the right words to what we're dealing with. And I don't, yes, I don't really know what the right words are. Yes, yeah, and I'm the exact opposite. I actually have no problems with the idea of agnosticism. I think that in some situations, it's the correct place to be. Um, I just am not sure that when you have no evidence and no no reasoning um, to go with it, I just and all the evidence that we do have is that of people making claims that they can't support. I just don't think that agnosticism is the correct place to be in that situation. So. Uh, let me just let me continue this agnosticism idea just a little bit more. Um, I believe that um, it's it's binary. So um, I think either you believe something or you don't believe something. It, this is not a matter of whether you can prove it. It's not a matter of whether it's true. 
I don't <laughs> actually care about those things right now. I'm just talking about what a person believes or what a person thinks. You either right. think a thing or you don't think, think a thing. And I don't think there are any shades of gray. So uh, if in, with regard to a God, you either think there is a God or you don't think there's a God. But you can't kind of think there's a God or maybe there's a God. I mean, if you're saying maybe, then what you're really saying is you don't actually positively believe it. Uh, if you're saying you're not sure, then that's equal to you don't actually positively believe it. Anything besides I don't positively believe it is you don't positively believe it. It's binary, and I don't care what words you put on the, sh the, the uh, various gradations under I believe. Uh, and and I, I completely agree with that as long as you don't um, confuse not believing it as, um, as being the same as believing it doesn't exist. I do not. So yeah. uh, I have listened to at least as much Dale Hunty as you, and I am not <laughs> going to make that mistake. Um, so um, that said, uh, yeah, I agree. And just in case the audience uh, doesn't get that nuance, it's, it's important to share that. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you the mic and let you explain uh, the Delahuntian nuance of, uh, not, uh, of not believing positively that a thing is true versus believing positively that it's not true. Yeah, and he's so much more eloquent at this than I am. Um, so basically what the idea is, is that you have, um, in any given proposition, like for example, God exists, you have two options. Either he exists, or, or either you believe he exists, or uh, you don't believe that he exists. But to say that, um, but to say that he definitely doesn't exist is adding in a different proposition. So you know you can be uh, convinced that a god exists, or you can be convinced that um, a jar of uh, blue and red marbles has. Um, an even number of red marbles in there, or you can not be convinced that there are an even number of red marbles in there. But that doesn't mean that you believe that there's an odd number of red marbles in the jar. And so that's sort of the distinction that's being made. Okay, and uh, I, I, well said. And I, I don't think that's a nitpick uh, either. I think a lot of Christians accuse that of being nitpicky. It is not. So whereas I think that belief is binary, you believe a thing or you don't. Uh, it is not the opposite of believe is not. I believe that it's not true. Right. Yeah. And I agree. Just because you don't believe something, one thing is true, doesn't mean that you believe another thing is true. Right. So, um, it, it, once again, if uh, the Christian argument, the Christian claim, forget the argument for a moment, the Christian claim that there is a God. Um, I find that they have not proven that. Uh, but that's not what that's not what would lead me to to champion agnosticism here. Uh, that that would be they haven't proven it, and I don't buy their case. The thing that leads me to champion agnosticism is I don't have any way to evaluate whether what they are saying is true or not, and whether there is actually a God or not. Um, and so without that ability to evaluate it, 
whether I wanted to believe in a God or didn't want to believe in a God, I would have to honestly say, I, I don't know. I mean, if it's not logically incoherent, we can talk about that in a moment. If, if, a, if the God proposition was logically coherent, let's, let's just be generous and say they've presented a type of God that is logically coherent. Because I think that uh, actually the, the basic God is not logically coherent, so it's even hard for me to talk about it in that way. But if they presented one that was logically coherent, um, and, and if it was one that I wanted to believe in, I think the best I could say is I have no way of knowing whether it's true or not. Now, to me, that is the definition of agnosticism, and for you, it would be something else. Well, I mean, if you literally had no way to know whether it's true or not, then I think agnosticism is a good way to go. I just don't think that we have no way of knowing. Um, I think because of the history of God claims and what we know about how the brain works, I think we have uh, fairly we have some evidence, if not conclusive evidence, that um, the claim is going to be false. Yeah, but I think that failed specific claims don't equal disproof. Uh, so one, one example of that is uh, a person might uh, describe, try to describe electricity. Maybe a person from a, a village has come to the modern world, has seen electricity, and they go back and they explain electricity to their tribe. And they describe electricity as uh, magic that runs through walls. Uh, they are wrong in their every utterance, but they have, that does not disprove electricity. No, but I mean, we don't. It's not the failed claims that is is. Um, and I would agree with you if if you were just looking at the failed claims, um, I would agree with your assessment. The problem is is that we know why we have those failed claims because we know we understand enough about how um, the psychology of a person works to understand how those failed claims came about. Um, and I think that's the, that's the important part um, because we have a hyper agency detection system where we have a lot of false positives and then we see those false positives act out in history I think it's. I think that's how we can. I mean, like I said, it's not conclusive, and it's not something I would say is philosophically rigorously proven. But I think for colloquial use, I think it's fine. Sure, but if we're trying to be precise, that doesn't disprove God. Your, your best disproof doesn't disprove God. Otherwise, you could positively say there's no God. Right, but it's not my job to disprove God. Right. It's none of our jobs to disprove God, uh, frankly, but this, this is why I am unhappily temporarily settling on agnosticism for the sake of this conversation, because I can't disprove God, and, right. I, don't, and I don't want to disprove God. It doesn't mean I have to take the God proposition seriously, and I think this is part of the definitional mistake with agnosticism. Christians think that that's somehow a better position <laughs> if they can talk you into agnosticism as opposed to, quote-unquote, atheism. Um, I, I, could, I could go off about that for a while. I won't. I would just say that that's not a better position for you, Christians. In fact, it, it may be a worse position if you're talking to someone who claims to be agnostic. Uh, you can't move them because what they're really saying is there's no way to know. 
in in atheists in in the terms that a lot of Christians like to use is saying, oh, there is a way to know. And so you can argue about evidence, but you can't do that with an agnostic because there isn't any. Yeah, and I and I just have to disagree with you. I don't think that um, the lack of ability to disprove something means that the the agnostic position is the correct one to do. We just we just don't act that way in everyday life, and um, all the reliable ways we have of distinguishing fact from fiction don't sort of support that. I mean, it's why we don't have the phlogiston theory of anymore. It's not because we can't disprove it. It's because the claims being made were not um, did not hold any water. So we're not agnostic about phlogiston. We just say it doesn't exist. So you think enough false claims about a thing represent... Um, knowledge. I think that if you make, well, I think if we are making claims and every time those claims are tested, they aren't, don't uh, show themselves to be accurate claims, I think we are justified in saying whatever that claim is doesn't exist. Yeah, so... We'll move on from here, but that's a tough one for me. Uh, the boy who cried wolf uh, was a fool uh, and should have his head examined, uh, but the fact of the matter is he may have been right every time. That, you know, The sound he hears in the uh, bushes may in fact have been a wolf. <laughs> um, and whether he even believed it was a wolf or not is irrelevant. Uh, and that village still may be in uh, grave danger from wolves. And so simply because... Uh, you know, they went through three or four of these things where he cries wolf and there's no wolf doesn't mean there's no wolf. Sure, but they also didn't test it. And what I'm suggesting is that when the claims actually are tested and show up to be false, and just, and just because um, he was right the last time when the wolf ate him doesn't mean that um, there was actually a wolf there the first four or five times he cried wolf. And so I think that's a little bit of a different situation than we find ourselves with God claims. Okay. Well, I'm not saying you're wrong, and I would like to, um, <laughs> but I'm not saying I'm wrong either, and I would very much like to do that um, because I don't, I don't like where this is going because I'm not an agnostic. I mean, in, yeah. my, in my heart, I'm not an agnostic in any way. Uh, I don't... I don't care whether I can prove something or not, uh, whether I can know something or not. I, I believe things, and I don't believe things. And I, I will always answer the question, or try to always answer the question, based on the condition of my heart at the time. I, I actually am leaning toward believing this, or I'm not leaning toward believing it. I'm not going to say, well, I don't know. Uh, screw that. <laughs> so, um, I don't. I just don't find it useful. Um, it, it's not. A, it's not a useful thermometer in taking the temperature of how we view reality. Well, and I agree, which is, which is why I'm sort of fond of science, just because it takes reality and puts it through the ringer and. 
truth ends up coming out. So, so let's let's look at uh, this thing about belief, though, because the the last thing I have in my title, we haven't left the title yet, Darren. <laughs> <laughs> so, well, you never do, though. The, the last thing we have in the title is faith. Uh, now, I want to give the I want to cut the Christians some slack here. We can we both have our knives out and we can cut up the Christians, but I'm actually going to turn the knives inward for a moment and take the Christians. Uh, position on this a little bit. Because I think philosophically there's a place for the Christian's position considering what I just said about agnosticism, which is uh, that belief is binary. Mm-hmm. Furthermore, we don't, I, I think, have a choice of what we believe. We don't have doxastic control over our beliefs. Um, so I didn't decide to believe in gravity this morning. Uh, but I believe in it, nonetheless, and I can't not believe in it. Mm-hmm. So um, that said, um, I think that we all have beliefs about things, whether or not we have evidence for them. We, we are not neutral creatures. Uh, we're, we're pretty binary. We believe a thing or we don't believe a thing. Mm-hmm. So whether or not the evidence supports it, that would be faith. And I would agree with the Christian that we all use faith in that way. Yeah, faith is one of those another one of those words that I really don't like, uh, just because it is so nebulous and depending on who you're talking with. Um, but if you just mean faith as trust, then sure. Um, we trust that things happen the way they've always happened. Um, gravity uh, always um, affects our lives, and we've got the evidence from experiences backing that up, a lifetime of experiences backing that up. And so we trust that things are going to work the same way as they did yesterday. Right. So the definition of faith uh, that I used in the article was trust, but I think it has to be a little bit more nuanced than that. And so I described it as uh, a level, a, a statement of the level of confidence we have in things. Uh, and so if we had, if we put it on a continuum and we were 100% certain, uh, then that would be knowledge. And if we had, um, if, if we were not at all certain, maybe whatever the one would be uh, as opposed to the zero, that would be faith. And everything between one and 99 would be some level of faith uh-huh. and a hundred would be knowledge. Um, so that said, if, if you define it, if you define the continuum that way, um, it's, it's just a matter of how confident we are in any proposition. If I say, well, I'm 65% confident that's true. Uh, then we are expressing uh, a measure of faith. Especially if we, if we use that thing. Um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm 80% confident that the public transportation that I get on will get me to the destination I want to go uh, without falling apart. I'm going to get on the public transportation anyway. So I've, I've applied some active faith, and I, I have about uh, 80% confidence. So I'm, I'm willing to describe those 
things as faith, if that's how the Christian means it. Yeah, but does that really how the Christian means it? Sometimes. <laughs> I, I, think that, I think they do sometimes. Uh, I don't think they're trying to be dishonest. Yeah, I've always found uh, Matt Delante's definition a lot more useful. Faith is sort of the reason we give when we don't have evidence. Because when we have evidence, we cite that instead. Well, this is actually the definition that Teddy gave last week. <laughs> so <laughs> I, was, uh, I was a little bit surprised to hear her talk about that. But yeah, uh, we all wish we had better evidence. Uh, but we have the evidence we have, and uh, we have to apply faith to that. So, uh, but once again, I think that what she's really saying, if, I, if I'm not just trying to use her as a bad soundbite, it was just fun, but um, <laughs> I'm better than that, right? Um, <laughs> I, I'm not really. Um, <laughs> but I, I think to steel man her argument a bit, uh, what, what she would say if she had it to think through and say again would be uh, that, you know, we can have 100% confidence if, if the evidence was 100%. But if we've got... 50% evidence, then we can apply confidence to that. Uh, and for her, she has, uh, you know, a high enough level of confidence in the evidence for her to act on and treat it as, as knowledge. Because at the end of the day, life is pretty binary. We either mm -hmm. have to cross the street or we don't cross the street. We can't 60% we can't cross the street because that's how confident we are in it. We may be 60% confident that we'll make it across, but we have to 100% cross the damn street. Well, yeah, and... Uh, well, and I agree. I mean, if that's how you're using faith, then sure, everyone has faith. Um, I'm just not entirely sure that's the... Not entirely sure that's the normal way people use faith, though. Um but if that's how you're defining faith, then then yeah, we trust. We do we trust a lot more than than what we normally have the evidence to support. Yes. So I look. I'm trying to steel man the Christian argument a little bit here, because I think this is a, a conversation that we need Christians to listen to and be engaged with. Uh, and so, even though we don't have a Christian on the panel right now, it doesn't do any good to give the weakest version of their argument. Uh, we have to give the strongest version of their argument, and if they can't make the strongest version of their argument, then we've got to work a little bit harder <laughs> to make to make their argument a little bit stronger. Now, if you want to talk about the definition of faith, I prefer. Uh, it's uh, pretending to know things you don't know. Well, and that's sort of consistent with, um, with what you were just saying, where faith is sort of the... Um, um, what you're adding to your evidence to increase your confidence level. Right. Um, and look, I can acknowledge that I have faith in some things, and I can talk about my confidence level. Um, my confidence is not increased uh, by my faith. Faith is simply a description of my confidence. And I think with, with a lot of Christians, they use faith uh, as a way of, increasing their confidence or talking about their confidence in a way they don't really have. So, 
you know, they, they have faith that God is going to answer their prayer, but they don't know. I mean, maybe, maybe it's 50-50, but they've got to talk about it as if it were 100%, as if faith gets them the rest of the way. <laughs> and faith doesn't get you the rest of the way. Uh, and I think that when you're using faith like that, you're, you're using it kind of religiously and you're using it wrong. Um, if you've got 60% confidence in that bridge, uh, whether you cross it or not, your confidence level has not changed. It's just that you have no choice but to cross it or not. <clears> that <throat> It's a binary decision. And so you might cross it and be white-knuckling it the whole way across. Um, but that doesn't mean you're more confident in that bridge than the person who didn't cross it. It just means that you, you had a greater incentive to try it. Right. So, um, you know, if we can talk about faith in that sense, then yes, we have faith. So at the end of the day, when we're talking about proving something using evidence, and we find ourselves without sufficient amounts of that, and reason, and we find that there's not enough evidence to really connect the reason to the conclusion, and so that fails us. At the end of the day, we do have to fall back on, well, we either believe this thing or we don't. Um, now, whether we believe a thing or not does not speak to whether it is true. But I just wanted to put it in there because I acknowledge that we all use it in that colloquial sense. But faith in no way should be a means of bolstering uh, confidence or giving you more confidence in what the evidence uh, provides. Uh, so can we agree on that? Oh, absolutely. Um, I mean, you have more experience with uh, people using the word than I do. Most of the time when people are using um, the word faith, and uh, from what I've seen, it's usually in the case of, yeah, I know, I know I don't have any evidence, but I just have to have faith. So, uh, so your experience with how people actually use faith is completely different than mine. Yeah, well, it just depends on what kind of Christian you're talking to. If if they've been beaten up by people like you, then they'll they'll talk differently. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I, I really think it depends on the Christian's experience in talking to non-believers um, yeah. as to what kind of faith they they mean. So that that more intellectual Christian. Uh, I'm just going to say they're using faith differently. Yeah, and it doesn't surprise me. It's not a very well-defined word. Okay. So look. Or maybe it's an overly defined word. We we have had a great conversation to this point. Uh, and at 58 minutes, I could turn this off and be happy with this conversation. But as you well know, the listeners will not be happy. <laughs> That's and the whole point of doing the podcast, so we, right? We are not going to give them the full three more hours, but we, but we will give them a little bit more because I think now that we have got this thing set up, mm-hmm. there uh, I want to let you loose on a few concepts and I want to want to back and bat them back and forth because once again, these are not just things that I've thought about and I've got the answers to and I think I'm right and I think you're wrong. I honestly don't know. Uh, and so even as we've defined these uh, things a little bit, I think I know now even less than I did when we started talking. So um, starting with the idea of reasonable doubt uh, or, or 
proving something beyond reasonable doubt. Uh, I have a problem with this very idea. I don't. I, I, first of all, I don't know what it means, and I just have huh? to uh, be honest that I don't know what it means. And what I think people mean by it, I simply don't agree with. Well, you're in good company. I don't think anyone knows what it means. In fact, the uh, courts intentionally keep it poorly defined so that each person brings their own definition to it. That's interesting. Um, Okay, well then let's see if we can bring some of our own definition to it. It seems to me uh, that this is an extremely adversarial term uh, because if I prove something that I say is beyond reasonable doubt, and you don't agree with me, then you must be unreasonable. Well, maybe. Um, well, because the term originally originated in the courts, as far as I can tell. And the courts have juries of multiple people. And the jurors vote on whether to convict or not. So you're taking a conglomerate of people and you're saying reasonable doubt, and each person views themselves as being reasonable. So if you get, you know, six people, you know, six out of ten people voting to convict, um, then the idea is that you're using the larger numbers to sort of uh, make sure that it's actually being reasonable, rather than um, rather than just when you're talking with one person. That's just consensus, uh, what you're describing. If, if the instruction is for each individual uh, to be convinced beyond reasonable doubt, then each individual has to think, okay, this is doubt, and this is a place where beyond which it would be unreasonable if you doubt it. And, and when Christians use this term, uh, it makes me doubly uncomfortable because I think this is what they mean. Uh, Christians, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but if you believe, for instance, that the Shroud of Turin uh, has been evidenced beyond reasonable doubt, then anyone disagreeing with you or doubting it still is unreasonable by, by definition. Yeah, and I would probably, I probably agree with that when it's, when it's being used in that way. So the last person that I spoke to uh, where this uh, question came up um, they were uh, very adamant uh, that the only the only way you could disagree uh, with the thing that he was saying at the time was if you simply don't have the information that I have. But if you if you have the information that I have then you are absolutely being unreasonable not to agree with me. And I think that's actually pretty common uh, for people in general. I mean, I, know, I happen to notice more in the, on the religious side because that's who I argue with the most often, but I think that's pretty, a pretty common human reaction because we've, you know, we view ourselves as reasonable. You know, we view ourselves as being logical, sane people. And... So when we have information that allows us to um, come to a conclusion, if other people don't come to the same conclusion, then are we being unreasonable or are they being unreasonable? And I think that's, I think that's where that idea comes from. We don't view ourselves as unreasonable, so that must mean that the other person is being unreasonable. So I think that's a problem. 
Um, yeah. I, think, I think it's a problem on both sides, uh, frankly. And I think one of my greatest challenges and one that I am trying to uh, correct, I will be consciously working on correcting, is viewing the other as reasonable. Now, that's, this is hard to do because I have certain ideas in my mind of what is and what isn't reasonable. But I don't think that I've considered enough factors. So uh, I can say that a thing is reasonable for me, but it may not be reasonable for you. And here's, here's why I think it's a bit more subjective than that. If I have, let's say, an IQ over 120, there are certain propositions that are going to be reasonable to me and unreasonable to me that are, that are not going to be reasonable or unreasonable to you if your IQ is under 80. It's, it's just going to, be, it's going to be a different standard of reasonableness because for you, under 80, reasonableness may be that uh, there's a monster under your bed. And, and you may have good reasons in your mind, such as it is, to believe that. It would be wrong for me to say that that's unreasonable. You simply don't understand the world in the same way that I do, but you have reason for believing it. Yeah, and I'm not entirely sure it's the IQ that makes the difference. I think it's breadth of knowledge, actually, well, that sure. makes the difference. I just, I just use that example uh, because it's a it's a pretty clear one. We I, I think under 80 would be the the level where we would say there's there's a mental uh, health deficiency uh, there. So, um, yeah, so whether, whether you say it's knowledge of the world, you know, a, a six-year-old versus a 60-year-old, uh, one's going to have greater knowledge about the world than the other, uh, one would think. So what is reasonable for a six-year-old to believe about the world is different from what a six, what is reasonable for a 60-year-old to believe about the world. And that's the only point that I'm trying to make. Yeah, no, I, I think I agree with that. Um, some people think it's reasonable to go ahead and just accept everything they've been told. Other people don't think it's reasonable to do that. Um, for me, reasonable is, me, is all about uh, how accurate you can demonstrate your views are. Yeah, and to me, that's a different question entirely. Um, I'm, I'm not, when thinking about reasonableness, I'm not thinking about correctness. Because it doesn't matter whether you're reasonable or not if the only thing you care about is right or wrong. Um, you know, a, clo a broken clock is right twice a day. D during those times, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's right but it's never reasonable to, to trust it. <laughs> so um, those are, those are kind of two different, two different things, I think. Um, and so what I guess, I guess the problem that I'm trying to express is judging someone else's reasonableness. And I'm, and I'm saying you can't really do it. Yeah. And I actually, I think I tend to agree with that. Um, I mean, I there are expecting you to agree with that. I was expecting a, a bitter fight over this one. <laughs> well, I mean, there is a there's definitions. It depends on how you're defining reasonable, quite honestly, because um, in philosophy, there are ways to determine if someone's being reasonable or not uh, just by definition. Um, because if you're uh, if you're using logical syllogisms, structures and everything, but I tend not to go that way just because um, 
95% of the population isn't philosophers. So to talk about it that way is to sort of um, target a very select minority of the population. And But when you have a very broad definition of reasonableness where you sort of view yourself as being the reasonable and everyone else is wrong if they don't agree with you, which is the vast majority of humanity, then um, then it be then the definition just becomes so vague that it becomes meaningless, which is why I don't try not to use it too often. So, yeah, we we actually see that in a very similar way. But let me let me just push the envelope a little bit further. Um, I believe that it is reasonable for a person to say that one plus one is three. Uh, I believe it is incorrect, but a person could reason their way to it using a. a some some bad information so they could say well one plus one you see these are three three words three syllables so the answer must be three um now you can you can say well okay but that's not how math works and you would be right but you can't say that they were unreasonable when they said it if that's how they understand the world now they you might that means you're going to have to start from the beginning and teaching the math but because they're wrong does it mean they're unreasonable? Yeah, and I don't know. I, I guess I, I, I do take that view. Um, but in, in, at a gut level, I always have being correct as part of that equation of being reasonable. And I don't know if that's reasonable or not, but that's just sort of how I, where I fall on that line. Yeah, I think that I think that we have to, for practical reasons and maybe philosophical reasons, separate reasonableness from correctness. Yeah, yeah, and I could definitely see that argument uh, being valid um, in the colloquial sense, not the philosophical one. Um, but I don't know. It's just one of those things that's how my brain wired. I just can't. Can't jump on board with that. These are things that we have to work on. Uh, because we, if we're going to be conversational geeks and inspire better conversations about real things that matter to real people with real consequences, then we have to abandon the notion that the person that we're talking to is unreasonable. So let me make a suggestion. If the person you're talking to is truly unreasonable, you shouldn't be talking to them. And you're unreasonable for talking to them. Yeah, I mean, that's... But then again, doesn't that counteract, uh, counterproductive to the, the idea of having productive conversations with people? No, because the conversation can be centered around understanding the reasons of the other. And, but what and, you... then, and then reasoning from there, once you have a common understanding, uh, like the example I gave, oh, three syllables, uh, three expressions, so the answer must be three, and then you can explain how math works. Uh, you, you have something common there. It's not that the person is being unreasonable, but they need more information to be correct. So it sounds like you actually have a sort of a um, – the goal of being correctness, and the reason is your pathway to get there. So if someone's being unreasonable, how do you um, – how do you detect that? You don't. Uh, I don't. I don't think that. Uh, once again, I think if we come to the conclusion, if I were to come to the conclusion that you were being unreasonable, 
I should stop talking to you. That's a dead end. Okay, so it's not that the person's actually being unreasonable. It's just that you've come to the conclusion that they're being unreasonable. Right. And therefore, you don't feel you have um, a good way to have a conversation with that person anymore. Right. Um, and at that point, you are just creating strife where no strife needs to be created. You can both go your uh, separate ways and be happy with your unreasonable lives. But the fact that you want to argue with a person that, with reason and a person who, in your mind, you've acknowledged can't reason well, that's just stupid on you. And, and you shouldn't do that. <laughs> so um, you're a bad human if, if you do that. So, um, I, and I think that that's where a lot of these conversations devolve to, at least. There's an accusation or a, a thought on one side or the other that the other side's being unreasonable. And rather than end the conversation and determine, well, I'm not going to talk to you anymore, um, you know, you continue. And I think the fact that you continue arguing may be belying the idea of unreasonableness because somewhere within you, you must think the other person is reasonable enough to be convinced by your next argument, <laughs> right? So you have to kind of believe that the other person is reasonable at some level to want to talk to them. Uh, well, I know for me, it's always, I've always got this um, outlook that if you just give the person enough information they can come to they can change their mind maybe not change it in the way that follows your line of thinking but at least they can change their mind and unfortunately i'm not entirely sure if that's true <laughs> right but the fact that you keep trying means that you think that there is something of reason in that other person oh yeah so this this is what i'm getting at we just need to embrace that and quit treating each other as if they were unreasonable. Uh, both Christians and atheists need to quit uh, approaching the conversation as if the other side is being unreasonable. I don't care what their reason is. I don't care whether you think their reason is good or bad. I don't care whether you think their conclusion is good or bad. They have a reason for believing what they do. And it could be that their reason was they were dropped on the head uh, when they were a baby. Uh, <laughs> which, let's face it, we all were. Um, so that's, that's a part of it. Uh, childhood indoctrination. Yeah, childhood indoctrination. They were hit over the uh, head with a, with a Christian brick. Um, so, you know, that's a part of it. And you can say, well, that's messed up your thinking, but that's just a nasty, cruel way of being. If you actually believe that their thinking was messed up by some fault of their own, you ought to be a little bit more generous. But the fact is they have a good reason for believing what they believe. My parents told me this. Uh, my parents love me. They provided for me. They've sacrificed for me. Uh, uh, they lived and uh, died believing this, and they showed me an example of what this life means, and so I believe it. Great. That's reasonable. It's a shitty reason. <laughs> but it is reason. Yeah, and I, one of the things that I've always... Um had problems with is thinking that uh, shitty reason means that it's reason. You know, for example, people claim like bad evidence. Um, well, if it's bad evidence, what does that actually mean? Is that even functionally different than no evidence? So if it's a shitty reasoning, is that functionally different than no reasoning? 
Yeah, well, I uh, think I remember uh, reading on a uh, very well-written paper that there is no such thing as good evidence or bad evidence. <laughs> we'll get to that. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I actually would agree with that to the extent, I actually disagreed with that when, we're, when it was about evidence, but I, I agree with it when we're talking about reason. I think, I think that bad reason is still reason. Uh, so putting good or bad in front of it, giving it a grade is, um, is irrelevant. It's like saying, well, that's good homework or bad homework. I mean, you can give it a D or an F or an A, but it's still homework. Right, but homework has a defined goal, right? Right. And it has, has a definite answer. So if you're going to say reason has a definite good and bad, then that, doesn't that mean that there is a definition of reason that's sort of – objective somewhere well i think that the way to grade reason is how well it leads you to truth uh, because yeah. if you have good reason let's say you have a good well well laid out logical syllogism and it leads you to a false conclusion uh you know i can give you an a on your reasoning but it was still shitting well yeah but if it's um if you can if the goal is to, for reason, is to lead you to um, true propositions, then isn't um, doesn't that make bad reasoning uh, that leads you to false propositions by definition? Maybe. I, I, so uh, one of the things that I'm doing here, uh, kind of on purpose, and maybe it's time to call it out, is I'm conflating two words. Uh, kind of like proof and prove, I separated those. Maybe we need to separate reason and reasonable. Um, because we have reasons for doing things. Does that mean we were reasonable for doing them? Uh, and I, I, I use that conflation because I'm not sure that there is a big difference there. I think it's a, a matter of perspective. And I, I think I have much better conversations when I can recognize that the that my interlocutor has reasons for them. And whatever reasons they have, that is what defines reasonableness for them. You know, uh -huh. if, if if a person thinks that it's reasonable to believe what authorities tell you about things. Um, they may or may not be correct in that claim, but that is their framework of reason that they're working with. So it makes sense for them to believe something when a high authority told them to do it. Uh -huh. And I, I, it, I don't think it's fair for me to say they're not being reasonable. Well, but then what's the goal of being reasonable, right? Because you, then you still have the same, the same issues as you did with reason. If, if reasonable has a goal of, say, uh, distinguishing uh, good reasoning from bad reasoning or something, I'm not sure what your goal for reasonable would be, um, then you can objectively quantify what, what is good and what is bad, right? Well, 
maybe because once again you can be you can have bad reason for doing something that turns out good every time so uh, I think it's bad reasoning to say that you should take the word of authority figures just do whatever they say however you could end up having a really good life <laughs> if you do nothing but do what everyone else tells you. If you're lucky enough to encounter people who are telling you the right thing, who are speaking the right truths to you in that moment. Uh, so it doesn't matter that it was bad reasoning. Your outcome can still be good. And so that's why I still want to separate those things. Well, I don't know. If your reasoning produces a good outcome, is it really bad reasoning? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> okay, but th but then you have a uh, sort of an objective criteria for reasoning at that point, then, right? Yes, because I guess I do. <laughs> yeah, and so what does it mean to? Um, so then, I guess the next step would be what is the that objective objective standard, and do other people? Um, agree with that objective standard. And if they don't, can you convince them to um, also take on that, that standard? See, I don't see part of the problem is I'm not sure that you don't have it the other way around. Uh, you're thinking of reason as something that comes first and then provides a framework for what you do. And I'm thinking of reason more as a post hoc rationalization for what you do, what you, and so, um, cause we don't always, we're, I mean, it's not like we're in the driver's seat necessarily. And I don't want to get too far into the, um, discussion of free will determinism <laughs> versus, uh, compatibilism and that sort of thing. But the fact is, Oftentimes, we don't know why we did something until we look back on it in retrospect. We, we don't well, have this set of criteria that we frame our lives through and then you know, check the criteria and then decide whether we're going to go left or right. Well, if it makes you feel any better, the neurology and psychology completely agrees with you. We make our decisions and then we assign the reasons why afterwards. Yeah, I think that's what we do. And that's why I can be a lot more generous when it comes to, re you know, what I, what I think is reasonable in another person. Now, once again, another person, what is reasonable for them is not necessarily reasonable for me. And I can, I can make that distinction. I just think that it's much more subjective. I, I cannot give you an objective standard for what it is, and I cannot tell you an objective purpose for what it is. I think the, the purpose, if anything, for words like reason and reasonableness is for us to, to help us define ourselves. Yeah. Um, I could see that. Yeah. And but when, I also when think we're defining that... other people in the negative, you're not being reasonable then it's just, it's conversational suicide. Well, yeah, but that depends on what your goal is though, right? I mean, if your goal is to have conversations, then you're absolutely right. But if your uh, goal is to figure out true things about the world, then maybe the conversations are best left to someone else that has a different goal than you are. And each one of those goals uh, makes 
the uh, idea of what's being reasonable completely different. Sure. Well, I, I know this. I can only have conversations with people who I think are being reasonable. And, and or, or, I'm sorry, I can only have conversations with people who I think are reasonable. And if I, if I honestly think that someone is just an obscurantist and who just, who just says random garbage, um, I've, I'm the fool <laughs> for continuing that <laughs> conversation. <laughs> so, yeah, so, so that, I, I, I appreciate, um, I appreciate that because that helps me actually clarify my position. I don't know if it's a position that you can ultimately agree with, but I, I hope there's some conversation about this on the board because I'm still thinking, thinking this through. Uh, well, I mean, there's a reason why I don't try to assign reasonableness to them. I mean, in my post, I mentioned that I grew up an atheist. So when people start talking about magic and gods, I have no framework at all to think that they're reasonable. So if I didn't talk with people that I felt were extremely unreasonable, I wouldn't be able to con to talk with Christians at all. So I I tend not to even worry about whether I think they're being reasonable or not. For me, it's all about do they have the information to make accurate choices? You know? Maybe it would do you some good to just do the mental exercise of assuming that they're reasonable. Well, I mean, I, I automatically assume they have their reasons. Um, and if what you mean by reasonable is... It's good uh, reasons to them. They're not acting against their own inner self-interest. Right, and if that's all you mean by reasonable, then yeah, I agree that they're reasonable. But like I said earlier, for me, accuracy has a part of that equation. So I'm, it may be a completely unreasonable position to have, but that's I've not just one I haven't been able to shake. So let's talk about some of the accuracy uh, as we as we get a little bit deeper into this. We talked about evidence, but evidence is pretty generic still, uh, even even though we've sussed it out a bit. So good evidence. We we both use terms like good evidence and bad evidence, and we've had some disagreement already on you know is there a such thing as good evidence and bad evidence? Is evidence just a um, a neutral thing? What what do we mean by good evidence? And it, we, we can include some specifics in here. Um, so we talked a little bit about history, proving history. You know, the score of last night's basketball game, uh, but more to the point, maybe proving that. Jesus rose from the dead. That's a long time ago, far, far away. We have no videotape. What would good evidence be for that? I'm not sure. Well, so good evidence, I think, is a is one of those hiccups in language that causes more confusion than what it actually. Uh, provides uh, clarification for. So what I what I believe that people are actually identifying when they say good and bad evidence is the uh, they're identifying the reasoning to get from the evidence to the um, to the claim. Um, so, for example, good or bad evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. Um, well, I mean, what do we have? We have Paul who says that 500 people saw him after he resurrected. 
okay, um, what kind of reasoning can you can you provide to get from Paul wrote it down or someone claiming to be Paul wrote it down to Paul was being honest, Paul was, uh, you know, being uh, dishonest, uh, Paul was um, delusional, Paul was... Um, you know, you've got all these options on the board. And how do you distinguish between any of those okay, with so the evidence that Paul wrote it down? Let's ask a more basic question uh, before we evaluate whether it's good. The fact that it is written down that Paul says uh, 500 people saw Jesus, is that evidence? I would have to say no, because we don't know anything about Paul. We don't have anything else to support any conclusion we come to. Is any testimonial, documentary testimonial evidence from history evidence? Um, it depends, actually. Historians don't talk about facts of history. That's something more along the lines that you're... Um, the news media or apologists will say. Historians do um, work with probabilities, and it's probabilities in the um, epistemic sense more than the probabilities of, you know, the numbers, actual probability. So what they're really saying is, given the amount of things that I've written down, or that I've seen written down, this is what I think probably happened at that time. And then if they're lucky, then they might get like archaeological evidence or, you know, relics from the past that actually support those opinions. But when a historian talks about evidence, that's what they're talking about. And so you can have facts of reality that happen. The problem is, is that how do you reason from the facts of reality to the actual claims being made? And I'm not entirely sure that just someone writing it down gets you anywhere. Okay, so if you don't take Paul's word that 500 people saw Jesus after he was raised, what would you consider evidence of that claim? Can there be evidence for that claim? I don't know. But luckily, I'm not the one making the claim. Okay. So I don't want to go to the whole what would convince you. I just wanted, I'm trying to evaluate evidence mm -hmm. uh, in light of a real example. So I would agree with you, just, just uh, to take a little bit of the pressure off. I don't think that Paul's writing, and by the way, I have no reason to think that it wasn't Paul who, who wrote uh, 1 Corinthians. So 1 Corinthians is one of the uh, undisputed uh, documents, and uh, scholars, both Christian and non-Christian scholars, seem to agree that Paul wrote it. And so I have no reason to, uh, to question the consensus. I don't, I don't think there's anything particularly bad about the, the criteria that they use to come to that conclusion and so until until someone gives me a reason to begin to doubt that I'm I'm comfortable with saying uh, that a there was a Paul and B that Paul is the one who wrote uh, first Corinthians and uh, 
this claim that uh, Jesus appeared to 500 uh, people is a legitimate claim from Paul. Uh-huh. So I'm willing to, uh, to grant all of that and still say simply because Paul said that 500 people saw Jesus is, is not evidence. So I would agree with you. Um, because there's no way to reason from that claim to whether it's true or not. And I've seen, people, I've seen Christians try, and I just find all of the attempts to be uh, pretty empty. They, they come up well short. So what, one of the ways that they, um, if you're wondering, uh, how a Christian would justify that claim and try to connect it to the truth, they would say, well, since uh, Paul says in his claim, and many of those brethren are still with us today, then you would expect that if it wasn't true, some of them would have stood up and said, no, I never saw Jesus, but because we don't have that counter uh, claim, then Paul must have been telling the truth. And there's no way he would have risked such a big lie if people were still around who could uh, attest that it was a lie. I don't know if you've heard that before. Yeah, I've heard that before. Um, But, I mean, that sort of has its own problems. One, was there really people still alive? You know, because if the event never happened, then, you know, Paul saying that there are people still alive doesn't really mean anything. And so if the event never happened, then you wouldn't actually see anyone contesting that because there would be no one alive to contest it. Right. It's a completely unfalsifiable claim. I mean, it's it's a clever claim, I suppose, uh, but it's unfalsifiable. Even in Paul's day, and you've got to realize, Paul, well, uh, we'll talk Paul some other time. Uh, but even even in um, Paul's day, if you were alive at the time, and if you were one of the people who saw this letter soon after Paul wrote it, so you're you're one of the Corinthians who got this letter. Um, I don't know the geography. I don't know how far away Corinth is from Jerusalem, but. Um, I'm, I'm assuming that there's some distance, some non-trivial distance involved. Uh, and Paul says, yeah, 500 people saw it, and some of them are still alive. You can ask him. Let's say that there was someone there reading that and saying, yeah, I think I'll look into that. Where would they begin? That, do they go to Jerusalem and just start asking people randomly? Paul didn't provide any names. Not one name of the of people where they could... Um, Go see. So it's a, it's a completely unfalsifiable claim, yeah. uh, and, and so it doesn't help. Well, and given that the church was largely responsible for uh, preserving a lot of the manuscripts of that time, that era, and that location, even if there were people that actually wrote out against it, I mean, there's no reason to think that the church would actually preserve those manuscripts. Right. I mean, so yeah, that's that's the second argument, which is there may have been. Lots of people saying, no, that's not true. I was in Jerusalem. <laughs> it, well, I mean, the, the Jews obviously didn't buy that argument. So Exactly. So you would have never seen those documents. And third, but why would a person like Paul take the risk of telling a lie that big that, could, that someone might be able to prove? I have two words. Donald Trump. <laughs> or Joseph Smith. Yeah. I mean, people, people tell 
Category 5 lies all the time in times when it can be falsified, in times where people really are writing the counterclaims to it, and they still get away with it. Oh, yeah. That's just sort of human nature, really. So that said, I agree with you that that claim is not good evidence, but I am, I am trying to empathize with the Christian here a bit by holding your feet to the fire and asking you, great, you don't like that. What would be good evidence for the resurrection of Jesus? And again, I, I don't actually know. Um, I mean, if we have, we have um, evidence for, um, uh, for like, you know, Caesar doing different things throughout history, but we have, you know, physical evidence that actually suggests he's done some of these things. Um, we have, you know, just, <laughs> there's a lot of things that we can use to actually get off the ground. You know, a lot of things that we know are facts of reality that we can at least get off the ground with when trying to trace uh, Caesar's life. But one person, you know, saying it in one document that can't be demonstrated to be accurate, I just don't know how you would produce not, evidence for it. It's not just one person. It's at least two. Uh, so Paul said that Jesus appeared to him, and Peter said that, uh, Jesus, that he saw Jesus. So those are at least two people in the New Testament in different documents that claim to have seen the resurrected Jesus. So this is not just a claim that other people saw Jesus. This is a claim, a first-party claim, that they saw Jesus. Now, is that evidence? Well, no, because then you, you still have the same problems with Peter that you do with Paul. I mean, how did you determine that Peter was telling the truth? Because if you can't, if you can't um, demonstrate that the, what they're claiming actually happened, then I don't see any way to reason about they it. Died, they died. They died for their claims. Yeah, but that's not evidence that it actually happened that's just evidence that they believed it happened okay, and that so assumes that they died that they for the believed, claims you acknowledge they believed it happened i yeah i mean if they're saying they well i mean if they're saying they believed it happened then i mean you have to assume they're being honest to get to that reasoning or i mean as part of the reasoning you have to assume they're being honest but if you don't if you have no reason to think that they're being honest then there's no there's no evidence there. So just in case um, uh, you missed it, I, one of the Christian arguments is that, yeah, well, no one dies for a thing, a, a known lie. They might, well, die, actually, for, they might die for something that's not true, but they don't die for a thing they know is not true. Well, uh, Joseph Smith is sort of the um, counterpoint to that because he did die for something he knows, knew wasn't true. Well, who so. knows? Maybe he was mentally ill enough by that time to have convinced himself. Um, I, so honestly, I don't, again, this is, this is a debate that someone is free to have with me, but I don't believe in the honesty of the apostles. Um, so I just, I just don't. I don't buy it. I don't, I don't think that Paul was any more honest than um, a televangelist today. There's no reason to believe that um, he 
he was, quite frankly. As far as their martyrdom, we don't have any proof uh, that they were martyred, A, for the cause of Christ, or B, if they were killed, put to death, that they had an option to recant. They may have cowardly recanted, recanted the whole time, <laughs> but that, would, that wouldn't have uh, gotten, their, their, um, gotten them out of the, the situation. So I don't think that you can, you can make that argument. Furthermore, these men were practically gods among their generation, if you believe the Bible account. So yeah. you, you say, what is the motive for that? Peter, as soon as, as, soon as the church is established, you've got people laying down huge sums of money where they've sold their property and lands and they're putting it in front of the feet of Peter. Peter was a fisherman. He never saw more than $3 in a day because he was obviously a shitty fisherman. Uh, because Jesus, honestly, he's out there. We see him a couple of times where he's catching no fish. We actually never see him doing well. <laughs> so he's a, he's a shitty fisherman, and all of a sudden he's got a million dollars placed in front of him. He's got some incentive to take this thing as far as it can go. Yeah, no, I completely agree. <laughs> the whole history of uh, priests and religious uh, life sort of uh, speaks to that. Yeah, and uh, we've got Paul, who was apparently uh, a junior, um, a, a junior Jew in, in some way. Who we don't know how his life was going. Um, I, it, it wasn't. If we just take Paul at his word. He was assigned the duty of killing Christians. This sounds like a shitty assignment. Uh, yes, just, just being honest with you, this is not the most respected guy <laughs> around the Sanhedrin. He's the, oh, who, who are we going to get to do this dirty work? How about that Saul guy over there? I mean, he's, <laughs> he's, trying to, he's been trying to get our attention for years. Let's, let's get him to do it. Uh, so he has an epiphany that life isn't going so well for him, and he changes sides. And instead of the little guy in the big pond, he becomes the big fish in the little pond. There's some incentive there, is all I'm saying. And to suggest that somehow there's no incentive for these people, their lives became infinitely better when they claimed to be apostles than it was before. I've always wondered if Christianity was Paul's first attempt. <laughs> You know, I wonder if he was like a uh, like a little Jim Jones somewhere out in the middle of nowhere at one point, and then uh, found the uh, Christianity and uh, decided, hey, this is a much better way to do what I want to do. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I mean, I don't know. Uh, it does seem like he had gained a little bit of polish um, by the time he got there. I, I don't know. I can just speculate, though, based on the story that we're told. I have reason enough to question their integrity. Now, maybe they were honest men. That's a possibility too. But when Christians say, oh, no, they had no incentive to not be honest, they're, they're just overstating their case. So I don't, I don't actually consider the testimony of people who have benefited from a claim to be evidence. Yeah, I'm not entirely sure how it can be. Um, I mean, even in the court system, if someone claims something, they still need, you know, a motive and gun residue and everything else to before they actually convict. And spectral evidence isn't even considered evidence anymore. Okay. So there's there's a lot that we haven't touched, but I'm gonna I'm gonna start winding us down here. I want to I want to end on a question that in the pre-show I said I was gonna start with, but um, I want to talk about uh, cumulative cases. 
Okay. I'm not a fan of cumulative cases. Uh, let me just say that up front. I hate the idea of cumulative cases. I know it's a real thing. It's, it's, it's something that we do because we don't, we don't always have that slam dunk evidence. Slam dunk. That's a basketball term. I know you don't know anything about basketball. Um, <laughs> I am. I am aware enough to at least know that one. Okay. All right. That's I, right. I know home run too. All right. Yeah. It's it's a, it's a home run evidence. <laughs> <laughs> Doesn't have the same ring as slam dunk. Like. Uh, so um. And so we have to settle for what we can get. And if we can't get one piece of slam dunk evidence, if we can't get one home run, we'll take, we'll take four singles. Uh, and I guess that's one way of thinking about a cumulative case. Well, a cumulative case is four singles. Neither one of them gets you to home plate, but put four of them together and you get a score. Sure. Um, the problem with cumulative cases is that no one point you make makes your point. So I've, I've often uh, had this kind of the stalemate with Christians, uh, apologists in particular. As we know, there's no apologetic that gets you to the God of the Bible. None. doesn't matter how good the apologist is. You can grant them the entire apology before they even begin. Whatever, it doesn't matter what it is. Cosmological, I don't, I don't care. Just grant it all. Now, how do we get to the God of the Bible? They're, they're, what you've granted doesn't get them there. and They have to go from there to theology. They have to make some other three or four points to build a bridge there. Um, well, and that isn't necessarily a bad thing, in my opinion. Um, but it does mean that they have to then do the work of actually demonstrating their bridge is, is uh, you know, sound. Yeah, well, I, I do think it's a bad thing. <laughs> so um, part of why I think it's a bad thing is because of the nature of the claim. We've, we've got a God who wants to be known by as many people as possible. Uh, and so we would think that if, if we say it is more convincing to have one piece of truly convincing evidence and he doesn't give us that then I question the claim at all yeah and I'm actually I'm actually okay with that because we don't we don't know that the universe is expanding because of one piece of evidence um, we know it's expanding because of a lot of uh, little pieces of evidence that actually point all in the same direction but I think what's the biggest problem with the community caves for God is, is that they're not really working with evidence. They're working with arguments that they can't demonstrate are based in anything real. And I think that's the real problem with their cumulative case. Because, I mean, even the cosmological argument, which is usually where they start out, they're making things up. <laughs> you know? I, I disagree with the premise of the cosmology cosmological argument too. People can go back and listen to Dale and I haggle over um, that if you really want to. Um, I'm not going to include a show note. Just go spelunking. It's in there. Um, so yeah, I, so I, I guess I can accommodate um, that idea 
I would describe it as lots of bad pieces of evidence don't equal good evidence. Um, if it's bad, it's bad. Uh, two turkeys don't make an eagle. Yeah. Uh, well, yeah. I mean, because zero plus zero plus zero is still zero. Right. And, and one plus one plus one doesn't equal a $100 bill. So, um, you, you know, first of all, if you want to get to a hundred and you want to do it cumulatively, you've got to be working with real money and not counterfeits. Um, and so each one of those things has to be exactly how they are presented to be. And I, I think that there are lots of places along the cumulative case that Christians build that are simply not shaky. And so part of the problem with this accumulative bridge argument that Christians make is if even one piece of it is shaking, uh, you don't get there. You don't, you don't almost get to God. Uh, it's like the speed of light. There's, there's no almost the speed of light. It's the speed of light or you're not the speed of light. And you don't, you don't almost get to God. Um, right. So, you, you know, if, you, if we're talking money and we find out that one of our dollars is a counterfeit, we still have $99. But if you're talking the argument for God and one of the arguments is bogus, you've got nothing. Well, yeah, because everything in the chain after that falls away because they're all dependent on the piece in front of it being true. And I, I think that, to me, that's, that's what happens with the, with the Christian's cumulative case. It, furthermore, it's really hard for people to keep up with a complicated cumulative case. Uh, so I think it is a little bit different than understanding the expansion of the universe. It doesn't matter if we understand whether the universe is expanding or not. Don't care. If you don't know, doesn't matter. You're not any less of a person. You're going to live a fine life. If you Actually, don't... that's... I'm not entirely, not entirely sure I um, agree with that because if the expansion of the universe isn't expanding, then the satellites we're throwing up don't work. Okay, you mean we're finally getting to something that we can argue about at the end of the show? <laughs> Possibly. Really? Um, hey, I'm not the one that started out with uh, the things that you chose to start out with. Hey, it's definitional, man. I gotta, <laughs> otherwise, you're going to be spending the whole time beating me over the head with, uh, actually, those are dinosaur eggs. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> I'm trying. It's like it's a it's a it's a landmine out here, folks. Um, you try it. You're going to get your leg blown off. Um, yeah, so I I hear what you're saying, but I don't actually think it's important for the average person to know that. I don't care whether the universe is expanding or not. If people who can put the satellites up can figure out how to put them up and make them work, I don't care. Um, it's It does not change the price of milk, um, which is about six bucks for me, and it's not even a whole gallon. It's like a three-quarters gallon. I use lactate. Uh, I think it's called lactate. Um, that's my milk of choice. It's delicious. It does not go bad. You can leave that in your refrigerator for a freaking month. <laughs> it will be good. I don't know what they're doing. It's worth the six bucks. Anyway, uh, we are not sponsored by Lactate, but I would love to be. Uh, maybe you should reach out. Got milk. Um, so, <laughs> um, yeah, so I don't, I don't actually think it, it's, it's not going to change the quality of my life if I, if I understand personally the expanding universe, but it does greatly ex uh, impact the quality of my life if I don't know the existence of God. 
and, and he really exists. So these, these are different things. And if, if God actively wants me to know, I don't think he would give me a difficult-to-follow cumulative case. Right, and that, of course, assumes that God would want you to know. Well, yes, um, but, I mean, that's kind of, it's kind of like a test of education at that point or a test of IQ it, that God's giving you this puzzle, and you either, A, have to put it together yourself or either, B, have to believe the person that's putting this puzzle together for you. And I find that very difficult, and I, it's unnecessary. There are, there are more convincing things than cumulative cases. You know the reason why we accept cumulative cases? Because we don't have a better uh, slam dunk case. That's why we do the cumulative case. If we had the slam dunk evidence, we would use that first. We would not, no one, no defense attorney <laughs> would take a video of a person uh, murdering that's not their client and then not use it because they would rather do this cumulative case. That would, not, that would never happen. You put your best evidence up first. The, the most convincing thing that makes the least amount of effort and the least amount of doubt in the person you're talking to. Yeah, no, I, and I agree with that. That's why I'm not, I'm okay with saying that God doesn't actually exist. Because if the best evidence that the other side has is um, a misunderstanding of what the science says and then a lot of assertions and speculation, then I see no reason to actually believe it. Okay. Um, look, it's it's been a good conversation. I'm going to... We're going to wrap up here, and um, the rest of the notes on both our pages will just have to wait for another day. <laughs> what I hope will happen is that we have some interesting discussion in the, uh, in the comments. And uh, this is one where I really mean uh, for uh, you guys to read the, read the blogs. Uh, there's some interesting things in here, and uh, feel free to challenge uh, – challenge us. I admit it up front. I didn't know what I was talking about. I have now spent the last two hours proving it. Um, and I'm willing to have a conversation about some of this stuff and have my mind changed uh, on it. So I'm open in that sense. Oh, yeah, that was another thing that I uh, had on my own personal list to talk about that we're just not going to get to, which is what it means to have an open mind uh, with regard to um, propositions that we've come to conclusions about. Um, I don't even know if that term makes any sense. I don't know what it means. That's uh, no, because it's one of those words that means different things to different people. Yeah. So uh, rather than have that conversation, uh, maybe uh, leave that for a teaser in the uh, comments. Uh, Darren, it's been a pleasure. And so since I gave you the first crack uh, at the whip, I am going to give you um, a chance to kind of summarize uh, your case here. And I, in fact, I'll give you the option uh, in case you're not prepared. Would you like the first last word or the last last word? Um, let's go with the last word. That way I can pontificate with whatever you're saying. Okay. So uh, here's my case. Uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to echo what Darren said right at the beginning. Proof, evidence, reason, faith, these are words 
we really think we've got a handle on until we have to write a 2,000-word blog on it. And then you realize how how tenuous your, your hold is uh, on those ideas. Uh, the one idea that I, that I think I'm going to try to hang on to, that I, that I think is right, I, I intuit is right, maybe you can say that I have faith is right, is that we are all reasonable people here. Um, we're not all right. Um, but none of us are being unreasonable in our own minds, to our own selves. And so what my goal is for conversations going forward is not to treat you as if you were unreasonable, but to try harder to understand what your reasons are for believing the way you believe. And if I want to move the the conversation forward, if I think that my position is true, the only way I can reach you from a practical uh, level is to understand and appreciate how your mind is working. It, it's it's a, a little like the example, one plus one is three. Yes, if you understand why a person says that, then you can go back uh, and, and work on getting to the truth that one plus one is two. If you don't understand it, and if you just throw up your hands and say that person is unreasonable, I think that besides not having a lot of conversational and just frankly human charity, you've missed an opportunity because, because you did not take the time to understand and your definition of reason was too shallow. I would say that Evidence, uh, which is a word that I've liked, I've enjoyed using for years, is maybe not the end-all be-all. Because evidence itself can be rather subjective, especially the quality of evidence. And some people might be convinced by some evidence, and um, I may not be convinced by that evidence. It's good evidence to them, bad evidence for me. Once again, based on the underlying ideas of what is reasonable for them. And so I think that, again, um, it's not to say that we should dump the pursuit of, of putting good evidence to use, but I think as a matter, a practical matter of understanding, we need to understand that uh, one piece of evidence for one person is not of the same quality uh, as another person. And we have to work a little bit harder and have a little bit more conversational charity to get around that. And I would also say that things that we skeptics traditionally dismiss, words like faith, we can, again, view more charitably. Yes, I think that Christians uh, have been using these words poorly and uh, almost um, in, in a scattergun way. But if we apply a little bit of philosophical charity, um, to maybe their underlying meanings or what they would mean if they were making, if they were able to make a stronger argument. Uh, I think that we all use a certain amount of that. And I think that there are times when we want to say, yeah, I, I think you're wrong. When what we should say is, I have no way of knowing whether you're wrong. 
and and I think that we should show a little bit less fear in saying that and maybe reach out a little bit further um, and charitably so that we can connect with the people where they are rather than standing on these very what feels like solid concepts of proof, evidence, reason. Um, I think they're maybe not as solid as we think they are, and underneath them is a greater truth that we would get at if we find ways and words to reach uh, the other's greater humanity. Uh, and so I think that's where I'll leave it. All right. Well, I think I will continue the theme of the show and just say that I largely agree with you. Um, I would say one thing, though. I think that if you're talking about evidence and reasoning in a vacuum, then there really is nowhere to go with it. I agree with you on that. And I think that people can be very subjective in um, what they view as reason, what they view as evidence, what they view as um, um, as anything along those lines. But I think once you put a goal on the table, then I think that that equation changes a little bit. Because I think that once a goal is put on the table to just, like for example, to distinguish true claims from false claims, I think you can actually um, have more of an uh, objective uh, measuring stick. I'm not entirely sure I know what that objective measuring stick looks like or how it would work um, in a lot of cases. Um, but I think once you have that goal, um, you, there are going to be good ways and bad ways to achieve that goal. And if your goal is to have better communication, then I think your definition of reasonable um, and reason is going to change versus if your goal is to actually figure out what claims are true and which are false. And um, I think I will leave it there. Darren, it's been an absolute pleasure. I've got to ask the question, though, that um, by now everybody is asking. You might even be able to predict what it is, but I'm just going to ask it anyway. Would you be willing to meet Mono Iwamino with Teddy the Bear, Shroud Wars 3? Um, yeah, I mean, I'm always willing to Boom! have a conversation. However, um, I think we need to concentrate, we would need to concentrate less on the details of the data being produced and focus more on the structure of the argument being made. Sure. Actually, I don't care what the details are. Um, <laughs> I, uh, I very much would like to see this uh, pairing. Uh, now that we have both established that uh, the two of you are actually fairly reasonable human beings. Uh, I think it's a very different discussion uh, than what a lot of people might anticipate. And uh, there is some hunger for this. Now let me just say, I don't give a tinker's damn about the shroud. Um, I, will, I will conduct the, um, I will moderate in that I'll turn the recorder on and then sleep through it. Uh, I will never go back and listen to it. I just don't care. <laughs> but, but there seems to be an appetite uh, for this sort of thing. Uh, and there are shroud nerds on both the Christian and the atheist side. And um, so 
Uh, I think that's one of those things that has been trying to break out for a little while. So I am going to ask you and Teddy to hold your shroud comments in the comments section. We will get you together um, offline and in the backstage and uh, have you work out some kind of details because I'm quite sure that this is something that Teddy would like to do too and a lot of people would like to hear. Okay. Yeah, sounds like fun. All right. Very good then. Uh, Next week, ladies and gentlemen, oh boy, is it going to be exciting. Um, The one who you have only known as Mr. T up to this point, the mystery man, his name is Titus. Titus is a Christian who has answered the call And the call is for a Christian who is willing to try out and take on full-time host position on Skeptics and Seekers. Let me tell you something that you would not know. I have already made the recording with Titus. I did it before the show. It's fantastic! It's awesome, and it's coming up next week. You don't want to miss it. No, I won't miss it. I really like Titus. I think he's a good guy. Yeah, so um, this is going to be fantastic, and uh, hopefully we'll have some other people uh, uh, pop up and um, take a a shot at it too. But I just want to let you know that uh, the future of Skeptics and Seekers has never been brighter. We'll see you next week, guys. Whoops.